Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is one of 11 psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah. Who were the sons of Korah? Or who was this Korah that's mentioned here in this title? Korah was a Levite. Uh, That tribe, you remember that tribe, the Levites, was dedicated to the service of the tabernacle, to the service of the temple. But Korah, along with two other dudes, Dathan and Abiram, stood out for this incident that took place during Israel's wilderness wandering. This is from Numbers 16, and likely you remember this from your readings. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and of On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action, and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? I mean, there's so, I, I could preach a sermon on that statement, right? Um, but let me go on and let's see how this plays out. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all the company saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself. That's Moses saying, we'll see who's holy. God will show us. Do this, take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Same words back to them. No, no, you've gone far enough. Then Moses said to Korah, Here now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? That's kind of like the rivalry that exists usually between the elders and the deacons' boards and churches, right? The Levites, not quite the priests. The priests are doing different work and, you know, there's some power play going on. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, We will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? 
we will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. And Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 pans. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his pan. So they each took his own censer, put fire on it, laid incense on it, and stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, O God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from the, around the dwelling of, dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth, and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he shall take, the, take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy. And you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which the men who had burned had offered, and they hammered them out as a plating for the altar, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord, so that he will not become like Korah and his company, just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. 
I mean, there's so much in there. I thought about, as I was reading that, I thought about preaching that passage rather than this psalm that they wrote. But I stuck to my guns and stuck with the psalm here. But I think it's helpful to think about the fact that it's the descendants of this man, this man who rebelled against the Lord, this man who died in such an extraordinary way, it's these sons who are now writing worship songs for the temple, for the people of God to be worshiping together. And so Korah, Korah was a rebel against authority. He was, he was kind of, he was not kind of, he was the egalitarian of his day. We're all holy. We're all equal. There's no distinctions. You know, there's, he was just, he was just trying to, um, he's trying to flatten everything like egalitarians do today. He didn't think there should be any hierarchy, any reason to show honor, to submit to Moses and Aaron and God used him as an example to show that there are distinctions among God's people for their good. Specifically, that the sons of Aaron were to burn the incense before God. That's what God had stipulated. That's what God wanted. And so, then there's the extraordinary nature of his judgment. The ground opening up and swallowing them alive. Stands as a remarkable reminder of the importance of worshiping God as he desires and not according to our own imagination. In chapter 36 of Numbers, we learn that the sons of Korah, the sons of Korah now, not Korah himself, Korah was judged, but the sons of Korah were spared judgment. And you think about that, that's the mercy of God, because usually sons, when their fathers rebelled, went right along in the judgment. You think of... um, at Ai, Achan, right? His whole family, all of his sons were, were stoned to death by, because of his sin. And yet here in Numbers 36, we learn that the sons of Korah were not judged. In recounting the earth opening and the fire descending, it adds this statement, the sons of Korah, however, did not die. They didn't die. They stuck around. God kept them for something. It is those sons still marked out by their connection to that rebel Korah who wrote these 11 Psalms. In the book of Chronicles, we learn that one part of this family, one part of the sons of Korah, um, became the temple doorkeepers and guards, while another part became the singers and the musicians of the temple choir started during David, King David's time. There's an intensity to the Psalms written by the sons of Korah. If you've read through the Psalms recently, if you're doing the 88-day Bible reading or the 90-day Bible reading, you just blaze through the Psalms and you come across, you come across the Psalms of Korah and they're just like a notch higher in intensity. They're very intense. Psalm, Psalm 88, the next Psalm in your Bible, Psalm 88 is one of the bleakest Psalms of all the, Bible, of all the Psalms. There's no light in it. It accuses God and then says we're dying and then it ends by saying, you have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. It just ends dark. Usually with David, it's like you've crushed my bones, you've broke me down, but you've dealt with me bountifully. Well, not so with the sons of Korah. They just lay it out there like, it's, like they're Job's, uh, like they're Job. And so, 
There's an intensity that I think is informed by their history, that connection to a rebel who died in an extraordinary way by God's direct judgment. For people that care deeply about tribes and clans and patriarchs, can you imagine the stigma that would have been attached to these sons? Right? And yet, here they are proclaiming their connection to that rebel in the very preface of the Psalms they had written for the worship of the God who had judged their father. It's proof, in my, in, in my mind, just this intro is proof of the, the merciful nature of God. Right? That sons will not be punished for the sins of the father. Sons will not be punished for the sins of the father. That there is hope for any who have had fathers who are rebels. There's hope for you. Thus far, the, the uh, intro to the psalm. Now to the content of the psalm. This psalm is, in a nutshell, it's the expression of a heart that is thankful to be one of God's children. That's, that's, it's, I think that's the theme. Thankful to be one of God's children. It's the expression of a person that has paused from the, the busyness of the mundane and settled his mind on the amazing glory of being one of God's elect children. It begins with this statement about the special attention of God upon a place. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. This holy mountain spoken of here is Zion, or these mountains are the mountains of Jerusalem. Um, it is a way of speaking at times the holy mountains, a way of speaking of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's a way of speaking of all of Israel. And by extension, it's, the, it's speaking of the dwelling place of God's people. It is Zion that God loves. His affection is set there more than all the other places in which God's people dwell. Um, why is it that God loves the gates of Zion more than all those other places? only because he has determined to do so. Remember when Israel is told why God loves them in Deuteronomy 7? He says to them, It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers. And so in other words, God's love was set upon Israel not because they were impressive or great, a great people or had accomplished wonderful works. No, his love was set upon them because his love was set upon them. His love was set upon them because he chose to love them. That's what it says. And such is true of God's church through all the ages. Uh, though there may be a mixture of wheat and tares in all of our churches, and we do know that's true from Scripture, there's always a mixture of wheat and tares, God still knows those who are his. His church invisible. He knows those who are truly his. Upon them, his eternal love rests, and it does so in a way in which it is more intense than it just rests on the visible church. That mixture of wheat and tares. Upon those who have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, God has set his eternal love, his loving kindness, that has said that we talked about a few weeks ago. 
The glory of that place will fill the universe because it is the place where God will dwell with his people. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. What is most glorious about that city, about that Zion, about that new Jerusalem, will always be her king, but also her people, her citizens. This is what the psalm goes on to describe. The attention turns to other places and other people, Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia. The psalmist says, notice in these verses, that those places are among those who know me. And the people of those places boast about their birth. This one was born there. But most important is to note that the text says that these places and her people are among those who know me. What this means is that these Gentile places will supply many who dwell in the new Jerusalem. This is speaking about the ingrafting of the Gentiles. This is speaking about the breaking out of the gospel into the whole world, right? Rahab is Egypt. Rahab is another name for Egypt. Um, Egypt, along with Babylon, had long been the enemies of God's people. And yet, here's the statement about some from Egypt and Babylon. Philistia. Those Philistines were the local bad guys that continually were a thorn in the side of Israel causing trouble. Tyre was, were those, in Tyre were those rich merchants and Ethiopia really is a stand-in for the nations that are farther off, away from, uh, from the promised land. What the psalmist is saying is that Zion's enemies have become her friends worshiping in the temple of her God. The psalmist is prophesying and rejoicing in the, the, the conversion and faith that will come to the whole earth, to the Gentile nations. Of that we read also in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Note that. The, the kings, the nations of the earth bring their glory into it, but all that comes into it are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the glory of those nations. God's people is the glory of those nations coming in. 
From those nations, there are those who are born in Zion. It's an amazing thing, that statement. Verse 5 begins with an adversative conjunction in the, the version that we read from, but it could as legitimately be and rather than but. But makes it seem as if it's making a distinction between the citizens of those foreign nations and those citizens of Zion. But, but I think and more properly draws verse 4 into verse 5. Verse 4 is speaking of the grace of God being showered upon the Gentiles. Then verse 5 is driving in a bit closer. Notice that it goes from speaking of nations to speaking of individuals. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. This one and that one. Spurgeon remarks on this. He says, not as nations only, but one by one as individuals, the citizens of the New Jerusalem will be counted and their names publicly declared. The individual will not be lost in the mass, but each one will be of high account. We mustn't lose sight of that simple evangelical truth, right? It is the names of individual souls who are written in the book of life. It is not the names of nations in the book of life. It is the names of individual souls who are written in the book of life. Yes, they are from every tongue and from every tribe and from every nation. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, but it is individual souls that will become the citizens of the new Jerusalem. That truth is further driven home when the psalm tells us that God himself will count when he registers the peoples and will declare this one was born there. This one was born there. I mean, that's glorious. That's glorious that you are known by God in such an intimate, personal way. We consider it wonderful to, in another sense, we consider it wonderful to have an American passport, although right now they're pretty worthless. Um, but, you know, should things be normal, when we have that American passport, we're thankful that we can leave and enter into our nation freely. But think of the honor when the voice of God declares to each of his children, this one was born in Zion. This one was born in Zion. This one was born where my special presence on earth dwells. Who will hear that declaration? It will only be those who have faith in the Son of God those who have declared their allegiance to the Son of God and to His Word, those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, those who believe that Christ came into the world to save sinners, those who believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus rose from the dead, those who have had the love of God set upon them from before the foundation of the world. Those are the ones who will hear that declaration. Into a city and mansion prepared by Jesus himself, those people will go to dwell for an eternity. We will enjoy an eternal Sabbath without being molested by any difficulties, by any sins, by any pain, by, by any sinners. As citizens of Zion, we will forever sing God's praises even as the dogs 
and immoral persons and liars are outside the gates in a lake of fire, forever sending up the smoke of their burning as a reminder of God's full glory. And the final point that this psalm makes is this. This citizenship should make you happy. It should make you happy. It should fill you with contentment. Right? It should, it should make you hate this world. It should make the nations of this world to you seem like a drop in the bucket. You should, along with God, scoff at the, the proud ramblings of the leaders of the earth. You're a citizen of Zion. God is king. It should stop all of your boasting and make you marvel that God has chosen you out of the world to be a citizen of an eternal kingdom ruled by himself. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. The psalmist puts it this way, Then those who sing as well as those who play the flutes shall say, All my springs of joy are in you. All my springs of joy are in you. The one question that comes out of that verse is whether you refers to the dwelling place of Zion or whether it refers to God himself. But to speak of Zion is to speak of the presence of the Lord. To speak of Zion is to speak of where God is. That is, in fact, what distinguishes the new Jerusalem from the cities of the world. God's presence is there. But what is clear is that our joy is to be set upon that city and the God of that city. Calvin writes, All our affections are then settled on the church when gathered in from the vague and vain objects by which they are distracted and regarding with indifference the honors, pleasures, riches, and pageantries of the world. They find enough to engage and satisfy them in the spiritual glory of Christ's kingdom and in that alone. The joy of our heavenly citizenship should be the power that pushes us through the terrible difficulties of living in a fallen world. Every bit of our rejoicing on earth should be born of this eternal glory we are entering into. Every, every bit of our rejoicing right, should flow out of that. There, there should be nothing that gives us joy unless it's connected to that eternal joy, right? Yeah, we celebrate our kids' birthdays, but psh, who cares? It's another year, duh, right? But boy, when they profess faith in Christ, oh, okay, I mean, let's get 18 cakes and let's get the little machine that makes the orange stuff from McDonald's you know, the orange drink. I, I'm dating myself in this. That's what we did when we were kids. We got the orange drink machine from McDonald's and it was amazing to have an endless supply of orange drink. Right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going on vacation tomorrow, so um, leave you with the little nugget, nuggets that the elders have to deal with. <laughs> 
But every bit of our rejoicing on earth should be, should be connected to, to that eternal glory of being a citizen of Zion, a citizen of God's household. Some applications coming from this psalm then. Remember this, God is working among the nations. God is at work among the nations, okay? Um, he is at work by his sovereign spirit in the nations. He's at work there. He will have his household comprised of adopted sons from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But remember, every individual will stand before God on the judgment day. They will either be declared a goat or a sheep, and the sheep will hear, this one was born in Zion. And why is that significant? Why is that, uh, that scenario significant? For a couple reasons. First, even as we seek to convert the nations, which is what the Great Commission commands, make disciples of all the nations, the means of that conversion, the means of that conviction, the means of that discipleship will, <clears throat> will be the baptism and teaching of every individual from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The mechanism will still be the Holy Spirit working regeneration in individual hearts, not in the Holy Spirit inspiring constitutions that lay out Christian laws. This would be true even if our government was filled with Christians, had a majority of laws based upon Scripture and a, a citizenry that was very happy about that fact, right? It would still be true that God would, would disciple the nations by conversion, by bringing them out of darkness and into light, by bringing those individual souls as adopted children into his household. That would be the mechanism of him conquering the world for Christ, and this is why it's imperative that we pray for revival. Revival and outpouring of God's Spirit upon those near to us so that they repent of their sins by the power of the Holy Spirit and submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, their King. The psalm speaks to this truth. Yes, we can speak of nations being converted, but the glory of God's new Jerusalem is that He knows each one there individually as a father, right, delights in each one of his children individually. Right? Yeah, we, can, we have a collective idea of our children individually, but boy, if that's all you ever think about is them collectively, you're weird. Right? I mean, I think of all of my children individually and all of their personality quirks and all of the, their, their facial structure and the weird way they eat you know, stuff like that. And it's, for the most part, delightful. <laughs> Another point, it is only by citizenship, citizenship in the New Jerusalem that the hostility between people of different nations will be broken. This is the Black Lives Matter portion of my sermon today. It is only by citizenship in the New Jerusalem that the hostility between people of different nations will be broken. It is only by inclusion in a household, in a city, in a kingdom that transcends this world that there will be peace. 
The church is the only hope for racial reconciliation. As every person is humbled, his boasting is demolished, and his utter dependence upon God's mercy is known, and his sins covered in Christ's blood. And this is from Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, both groups being Jews and Gentiles, two different races, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Right? That is racial reconciliation. We, you know, it's not about being colorblind. God is not colorblind. He rejoices in all the different tribes, tongues, and nations. Right? He rejoices in that. But he incorporates all those different people into his one household. And that is the only hope for racial reconciliation as God is redeeming the nations and drawing his people into his church, which is the society of those who are redeemed and covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. That breaks down dividing walls. right? That breaks it down. And then, honestly, and then we can rejoice in our differences. Then we can enjoy our differences. We can listen to our different musics and we can look at our different looks and we can, we can just think, praise God, God made all kinds of people and is saving all kinds of people. And we can love one another that way. And it's glorious. But what would bind us together is the Spirit bringing us into the household of God. Another point, where God is, there must be joy. Where God is, there must be joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Psalm 16 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. If you are going through the Christian life and there is very little joy, there's very little ability to feel joy even in the midst of of dark, and especially in the midst of dark and bleak trial, then you have not sufficiently grasped the glory of your citizenship in Zion. Your faith should always be able to transport you to Zion. Your faith should always be able to lift you off of the things of the world and set your mind on the things above. Uh, The truth that God will one day wipe away your tears and declare you to be a natural-born citizen of heaven, well, that... That was the kind of fuel that caused the apostles to rejoice when they were beaten. Like when when those whips ripped the flesh off their back, they went away rejoicing. That too should be the fuel that allows you to endure persecution for his name should it come. But even without persecution, that anticipation of God putting things right and bringing you 
into the gates of the new Jerusalem, well, that should create in you just a settled joy. It's like a baseline joy that's always present. Your joy should be based upon that and not upon, you know, the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, the, the triumphs and the disappointments. No. We do that and we'll get beaten about. Like Jesus, we should fix our eyes on the joy that is set before us when we're in that consummated kingdom, when we're, when we're married to the Lamb and we're proclaiming Him the King of the universe and we're dwelling in mansions and living in His presence. And the, the sun, the thought of the sun and the thought of the moon, man, that's so like dull and dim and nothing because this light we're basking in is so much more glorious. Another point, you should wonder at God's love for you. You really should wonder that God loves you. The intimate love he has for you as an individual soul is expressed in this psalm. He intends to bring you near to him and he intends to pronounce you forgiven. He intends to shout to the whole watching world that you are his. You are a member of his glorious household. He intends to bless you with unimaginable blessings in an incorruptible inheritance. He intends to give you a dwelling place in which there is no need for the sun because the lamb will be the light. He intends to tell all your enemies and every soul that ever lived, this one was born here. And that should fill you with wonder as you consider how often you've been unfaithful to him. How often you've broken your promises made before him. How often you have sinned with, without feeling much remorse at all. How often you have spurned his provisions for you. How often you have left undone what he requires of you still. Even still, he remains faithful having bound himself by an oath. After the prophet Ezekiel runs through a long list of Israel's harlotries, even after God has rescued her and cleaned her off her blood, he announces this, Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have, when I have, when I have forgiven you all that you have done. The Lord God declares... This is why Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, that God might keep covenant and shower you with the grace His Son earned through His suffering. That kind of redeeming love should boggle your mind. It should boggle your mind, does it? Have you rightly considered your true citizenship in heaven? Have you rightly considered the immensity of God's eternal love for you? If so, you would have some energy to dance Yes, Presbyterians, to dance, to sing, and to declare all my springs of joy are in God. All my springs of joy are in you. 
Amen.